Nisan Bulabinaka, you're listening to Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific Ngo Okoroi Hawkins. Coming up. Security fears about China are so severe that they will do everything they possibly can to get hold of anything that will cast any light on Chinese activities in the uh, Pacific region. More insights into Australian and New Zealand spy operations in the Pacific. If you haven't raised the minimum wages in the country and if people's incomes are not rising, more and more people will fall into poverty. The Fiji government is being pressured to raise the country's minimum wage. Obviously our first concern was the people and the communities and then and consider you know, looking at our um, vanilla crop. And there are concerns about the long-term agricultural impacts of the recent volcanic eruption and tsunami in Tonga. Last week, we ran a Talanoa series with investigative journalists Nikki Haga and Anthony Lowenstein calling out the governments of Australia and New Zealand on what they described as conflicting foreign policies. That's being part of the Pacific family on one hand, while on the other hand being a spy for the US Intelligence Alliance, also known as Five Eyes. We put in requests for comment to relevant ministries in both Australia and New Zealand and have so far got some responses from the New Zealand government. And we've also been speaking to some academics specialising in the Pacific about intelligence gathering activities in the region. So today we're starting up another Talanoa series on spying in the Pacific, going over some of these government responses as well as some analysis of the issues. So we start today with the main part of a written response to Nikki Haga's article from Andrew Little, New Zealand's Minister for the Government Communications Security Bureau, the GCSB, and the New Zealand Security Intelligence Service, the NZSIS. Aotearoa New Zealand is part of the Pacific and we have a shared interest with our neighbours to promote a peaceful, stable and resilient region. GCSB collects analysis and reports on intelligence in accordance with Aotearoa New Zealand's national security and intelligence priorities, NSIPs. All its activities are properly authorised in accordance with our laws and human rights obligations. Peace and stability in the Pacific has been an enduring intelligence focus for successive governments, especially in recent years, given the Pacific region is increasingly experiencing geostrategic competition and transnational organised crime. This is reflected in the NSIPs, which focus on understanding domestic and regional security issues in Pacific Island countries. It should therefore come as no surprise that GCSB collects intelligence regarding Aotearoa New Zealand's interests in the Pacific. This activity was reviewed by the Inspector General of Intelligence and Security in 2018 and was found to be appropriately authorised and in line with government requirements. With me now is Victoria University Professor of Comparative Politics, John Frankel, who has done extensive research in political science and cultural studies in the Pacific. Welcome, John. What are your initial thoughts on the issues being raised here? Well, I think Nikki Haig is quite right that it's questionable that uh, New Zealand or Australia should be spying on the uh, Pacific neighbours. Uh, we have here a lot of um, uh, mention of the idea that this is a our region, that this is uh, our backyard, uh, that there's no difference between uh, New Zealand and the islands, that there are very close connections. And uh, to be uh, uh, providing intelligence to the Five Eyes Network on these very close uh, 
regional states is certainly questionable. And uh, um, I think many New Zealanders, just as many New Zealanders would not like um, to see uh, intelligence authorities spying on their own citizens. So I think many would also apply that to the Pacific Islands and see no real justification for uh, for, for intercepting Facebook or uh, uh, telecommunications, mobile phone communications and those kind of things. Um, I appreciate that uh, New Zealand and Australia want to know what's going on in the Pacific region. Uh, uh, there are lots of ways to find out what's going on in the in the um, in the Pacific region, but there should be some respect also for the privacy. I think just as most of us would like to have our own privacy respected, so is it likely that most New Zealanders would would think that it's appropriate to respect the privacy of communications between citizens out in the Pacific. And and what what do you think about the kind of intelligence um, that that Australia and New Zealand would be interested in in the Pacific? Well, the um, the uh, details in Nicky Hager's article are light on what actually the content of these things are, but he's f- picked up a few things from, from the Snowden papers and elsewhere, which include um, intelligence reporting on anti-corruption activists in the Solomon Islands, for example, and uh, the Tony Fullman incident a few years ago, where uh, New Zealand th- authorities thought they had uncovered a plot against uh, Frank Bainimarama, Fiji's former military commander, now prime minister, and uh, they uh, uh, there was even a raid on the um, on the home of Tony Fulman a few years ago uh, because of communications which were deemed to uh, entail his involvement in some kind of an assassination plot. Now this was shown to be absolute nonsense in retrospect. The um, uh, uh, my experience in talking to uh, Diplomats and people who are probably uh, uh, um, can probably access some of this kind of secretive intelligence is that they often don't they really don't know how to interpret it often often they don't have the background knowledge to be able to construe what's right and wrong and often they can draw completely crazy conclusions from this stuff. Um, it usually needs some considerable background knowledge of the Pacific to be able to interpret some of these things. And unfortunately, that's not that common in diplomatic circles, either in Australia. There are some specialists who know what they're talking about and know the islands very, very well. But there are others who have very, very scanty knowledge who come across these kind of sources of information and then put an extraordinary spin on them uh, because perhaps that suits their their, uh, superiors upstairs to hear these kind of stories. But the... um, uh, certainly in that Fulman incident back in, was it 2016? Uh, th- th- that was shown to be uh, complete nonsense. I think uh, there was some communication with uh, uh, R- R- Ratu Ulumara, who was uh, Ratu Sarkamesis Umara's son, who was a former military officer who uh, became an exile from Fiji. Uh, Rata Ulamara is, uh, you know, we, a lot of people, a lot of us know him well. He's often making uh, extraordinary statements against the regime uh, that you have to take with a pinch of salt. His intentions of uh, uh, actively overthrowing the regime are, are, I would think, very questionable since he's uh, disappeared to Tonga anyway. Uh, there are loads of people in, in Fiji and elsewhere who will say all sorts of things around the grog bowl that make it sound like they're involved in big conspiracies, whereas actually uh, there's really not much to these things. Uh, as you say, uh, coming coming back to the, the, the point Haga's making, it, it is the principle of the thing, isn't it? Like, yes. uh, not, not only 
in terms of just common courtesy and decency, but culturally for the Pacific, it's it's there's a deeper insult to you saying your family or Vuvale or part of the region and then to be spying. Yes, yes. Although it goes deep, even in Western society, I think it's been a controversial issue here in New Zealand too, but, but absolutely. And let's not forget that uh, uh, Scott Morrison's Vuvale speech was uh, delivered at a military barracks uh, uh, and therefore was uh, aimed at uh, expressing close connections with the Fiji military forces, not necessarily with the Fiji people. And uh, as even a former Australian High Commissioner to Samoa was prepared to mention that the use of that term Vuvale might not be appropriate in the Pacific context um, because family means something very different in Samoa where she was thinking about as compared to Australia. Do you see any sort of action arising from this kind of reporting or do you think it's it's something that because of the the nature of the the topic and and the space because it's so I guess so secretive and so little concrete that we can report on that it'll probably just keep on happening this way for a while to come yet well uh, and they probably deflect uh, the idea of nation state responsibility by doing it through the five eyes so that someone else uh, can be deemed to be responsible uh, my guess would be that uh, no, from what we know of uh, the concerns of both particularly the australian government but also to some extent the new zealand government is that the china issue is such a hot potato at the moment and the security fears about China are so severe that they will do everything they possibly can to get hold of anything that will cast any light on Chinese activities in the uh, in, in the Pacific region. Um, but I do think it's, it, it's, it's important that uh, there are New Zealand citizens around that are prepared to stand up and say, hey, hold on a minute, is this really who we are? Is this what we want to be? Is this the kind of relationship that we want with the Pacific Islands? Uh, all power to their elbow. The leader of an opposition political party in Fiji says the government's claims that raising the national minimum wage would lead to job losses ahead of the 2018 elections was bogus and an outright lie. The current minimum wage in Fiji is just over a dollar US an hour. National Federation Party's Professor Biman Prasad says the recent assessment by an Australian economist that the poverty rates in the country had reached almost 30% does not come as a surprise. He told RNZ Pacific regional correspondent Kelvin Anthony that Fiji's poverty rates after the COVID-19 pandemic have increased to almost 50% of the population. That's very obvious for any economist to see that if you haven't raised the minimum wages in the country for a long time, and if people's incomes are not rising, uh, then more and more people will fall into poverty. Perhaps it is not unknown to some of those who are doing the review that poverty level has not been reduced. In fact, you know, it has increased in the last household expenditure survey, uh, and that was before COVID. And if you look at the report, you can uh, estimate that uh, 15 to 20 percent of the people were already on the margins of the poverty line, which means they could very quickly fall below the poverty line. And my estimate right now, uh, after the COVID, that 
those 20%, 15 to 20% on the margins of poverty have already fallen below the poverty line. And the uh, important you know, consideration for this government, uh, which of course is known for promising, uh, but never delivering, uh, so it, they had promised. We talked about raising minimum wages in 2018 election, and of course, you know, they were scaring away the employers and employees together to say any rise in minimum, minimum wages is going to uh, lead to loss of jobs. Now, that was bogus, and that was uh, an outright lie perpetrated by the government in uh, cohorts with some of the big businesses, such as those in the garment industry, and they killed the idea, and they were sitting on their laurels uh, since 2018, uh, didn't come up with any review. Now, just before the election, they have again hired the same guy to review the uh, minimum wages. So what he's saying uh, isn't mind-boggling or isn't something that people in this country don't know. Uh, It is quite obvious that the poverty level has risen. After COVID, you know, it's probably close to 50% or if not above. And so uh, we need to look at how we can raise the incomes of the people. And one way, of course, is to ensure that those living in the poverty, those in the employment sector have a decent living wage. Uh, I would call it a living wage, not a minimum wage, as this government wants to, uh, to, to the people and uh, not doing this because the election is around the corner. This government, as you know, Kelvin, is always motivated by how they look for the election. And so everything they do, whether it is haphazard, reactive, uh, it's all about making them look good. And so suddenly, you know, uh, after three or four years or since 2014, they've suddenly realized that too coming from uh, an expert to say that if you don't raise minimum wages, Uh, Of course, uh, people will fall further into poverty and those who are in the margins, on, on the margins of the poverty. So that would be my reaction. International agencies and businesses are expressing concern about the long term impacts of the recent volcanic eruption in Tonga. For days after the eruption of the Hunga Tonga Hunga Hapai submarine volcano on the 15th of January, the kingdom was covered in a blanket of volcanic ash and later soaked with acid rain. The UN Food and Agriculture Organization warns the ash could delay or stunt agricultural harvests and says with roughly 86% of Tongans engaged in agriculture, the potential impacts are huge. A handful of New Zealand companies import agricultural goods from Tonga, including Heilala Vanilla, which has been using Tongan vanilla since 2002. Heilala Vanilla CEO Jennifer Bogus says that most of the vanilla is grown in Vavau, which was relatively unaffected by the eruption, but there's concern for vanilla crops on other islands such as Ewa, which was badly affected. She spoke with RNZ Pacific reporter Finau Funua. So when the disaster happened on the 15th of January, we immediately set up a relief fund in Heilala Vanilla Foundation, uh, which we've had in place since 2013 and has predominantly been used sort of on an ad hoc basis for various disasters over that period. Uh, obviously, this one is much bigger and the implications and destruction are, are a lot <laughs> um, more wide felt than anything in the past. So um, we set up the um, relief fund with $25,000 donation from Heilala Vanilla Limited. And um, since then... 
Um, the fund, the relief funds now at 106, over 160,000, and we've been really um, humbled and uh, overwhelmed, really, with the support that we've had from our global Halala Vanilla community. So we're in a position now that um, you know we can provide and look at short-term, medium-term, and long-term um, support for this disaster. So our short-term has been, uh, we've sent two shipments so far of predominantly food uh, and water and then also just some supplies for re-establishing a shade house for growing seedlings on the island of Awa. So most of our support has been uh, focused on the community on Awa because um, that's where we have a uh, one of our bases for vanilla growing and have a vanilla grower community that um, has been impacted. Um, along with there was about 60 homes, households, families that have you know lost kind of everything on Awa. So we you know have been focused on that community. So that's sort of what we've done you know as of today. Um, and we've been enabled to do that really by our partner on the ground, which is Mordi, uh, who focus on <clears throat> supporting rural communities. Um, so they've been able to clear the shipments for us, get them over to Awa, which in COVID times in Tonga has also been challenging. Um, so, yeah, it hasn't been straightforward, but, uh, yeah, we were really happy when the first shipment actually got there and got got handed out. Um it's affected business, of course, this whole um, disaster. How has it affected um, your vanilla? Yeah, well, obviously our first concern was the people and the communities. And then and consider, you know, looking at our um, vanilla crop, um, our operation is spread over Vivao and Awa. So Vivao has been relatively unaffected by the disaster, apart from being cut off remaining and projected to be cut off for six to eight months due to the cable breaking and not being reconnected for Vivao and the Harpies um, and, you know, just lack of um, supplies and things. So the, we expect the, the crop in Vivao, you know, will be unaffected this coming season. The other thing is that it possibly happened at the best sort of time in the annual growing cycle of vanilla because um, pollination had finished Harvest had, was already completed, you know, back in October, and then po pollination follows. So we're just sort of waiting, really, to see on AWA what the impact will be. Is sometimes there's sort of a delayed effect on plants and the the vanilla beans that are forming on the plants. Um, so yeah, it's just a, a bit of a waiting game. And um, we have had the ash analysed um, by Plant and Food Research back here in New Zealand, and um, yeah, it's just a, a bit of a waiting game to see how it's going to impact the crop from Awa. Um, just one more question: um, How much? How many um, employees do you, if I could ask? Um, uh, during the season, the actual harvest season, it kind of gets up to twenty people on Vavau and Awa, um, and then during the year, we have one to two people. Um, women that are, you know, full-time employed. Um, and obviously that sort of, you know, is the, the wider impact is into their their extended families um, and, yeah, the support that we provide them. Growing vanilla in Tonga, why is Tonga 
I mean, why did you branch out to... Well, vanilla only grows 20 degrees either side of the equator, so it needs a certain amount of heat, humidity, rainfall. Um, the main growing country or region in the world is Madagascar Reunion Island for vanilla, uh, and Tonga shares similar, similar you know, geography in terms of um, positioning to the equator. Uh, and vanilla had grown there in the past, in the 70s and the 80s, really well. Um, so when we um, were looking at ways to support livelihoods and communities in Tonga following Cyclone Walker in 2002, um, vanilla was decided as, as the best crop. And because also, um, you know, it had to be a crop that um, could, you know, didn't need, um, wasn't perishable and didn't need, you know, regular reliable freight. So um, it, it sort of fits perfectly, really. That brings us to the end of Pacific Waves for today. Remember, you can download us free to your device from Spotify, iHeart or Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Mo mea.